Hello and welcome to This Expat Life. My name is Amanda Maxime and in this podcast I open up space for all facets of life abroad. And I do this by telling relatable stories, sharing practical tips and talking to other experts and expats who are living abroad. And today I want to tell a relatable story, although I'm not so sure how relatable it is, but it is a story from my own personal life. Today I want to talk about what it's like to be a diplomat. As you may know, I was a diplomat. I worked for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for nearly seven years. And this was a super, super interesting period in my life. And I always get so many questions about what it's like to be a diplomat. What do you do? What is diplomat life like? So I thought it would be nice to share a little bit more about this in this podcast episode. I joined the ministry when I was 27. So I spent my late 20s and early 30s working as a diplomat. And looking back, I am just so grateful for that period of my life. I learned so much. I met so many interesting people. I had the most wonderful experiences. And I'm really so thankful for everything that I've learned and experienced working as a diplomat for the Netherlands. But obviously there were downsides too, because I quit my job a year and a half ago and I wouldn't have done it if it was only rainbows and butterflies. But more about the good, the bad and the ugly later. First, I want to dive a little bit more into what do diplomats actually do? Because a lot of people know the term diplomat and they have a vague idea of what diplomats do. Like something with passports and are you a spy or something? I got asked this question a couple of times actually. But most people don't know what diplomats do day to day. And also they don't know how you can become one. So I want to share a little bit about that first. And very broadly speaking, what diplomats do is that they look after the interests of their country. And as you can imagine, the interests of a country can be very broad. So what you do really depends on the job of your posting. And I had three different jobs in the nearly seven years that I worked at the ministry, which I will share more about in a minute. But it can be so varied what you do. You can work with consular affairs, helping people to get passports or get out of difficult situations in other countries. You can work on economic interests and help Dutch companies. You can work on political affairs. There's really so much that you can do at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And this is also what attracted me in the beginning, because I'm someone who needs a lot of variety in her life, variety of location, of jobs, of colleagues, of interests. And the job at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs really provided me with that, because every couple of years you change uh, your job, you get a new posting. And that's really the advantage that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has, at least to me, and I know to many of my former colleagues. It is so cool that you have this permanent contract, a steady job, but every couple of years you basically get a new job within that job. That's really cool. And maybe some people don't like that, but that's the reason they're not a diplomat, I guess. But for me, it always worked really well. So how did I become a diplomat? Well, for me, it all started in 2012 when I was living in Argentina in Buenos Aires, and I did an internship at the Dutch embassy there. And during my studies, I already had this vague idea that I wanted to do an internship at an embassy in Latin America. Uh, I was crazy about Latin America and still am today. And I knew that the one in Argentina was very popular, but I applied nonetheless. And I was so surprised that out of 30 or so people, I was chosen to become the new intern. And that experience really strengthened my belief that maybe, hey, this was possible for me as well. Because at the time, my self-esteem wasn't so great. I just felt like a very regular girl, even though I had pretty good grades at university and I was doing two studies at the same time. 
but I just never thought that working as a diplomat was within my reach. And then working as an intern at the Dutch embassy there really strengthened my belief that it was also possible for me. And it also really boosted my interest in becoming a diplomat because I really, really enjoyed working in Argentina. But I thought it was important to have a different kind of experience as well. I didn't want to become a civil servant straight after university. Uh, I was also very interested in the private sector. So I first moved to London to do a master's in Latin American studies. And I enjoyed London so much that I ended up staying there and working uh, in total at two different companies, really in the private sector. And then the annual recruitment process of the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs opened again and I decided to apply and I took this pretty seriously. So I met up with some people who were working there. I really read more about uh, international affairs. I started reading The Economist because you get tested on your knowledge as well. And the process is pretty lengthy. I think it took about four or five months and it had, I'm not so sure, but maybe six or seven rounds. So obviously it starts with a motivation letter and some online capacity tests, but I also got tested on my language skills. So obviously English, but also Spanish in my case. Uh, there was a psychological assessment, a role play, and then there were several interview rounds with people of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the first one was pretty simple. They just asked me a bunch of questions about myself, but also about the current state of the world. And questions like, would you supply Turkey with arms if they requested? And the answer is yes, because they're part of NATO. My opinion about some affairs in Latin America, it wasn't super difficult. But then the last round, which is also called the blood round, is more challenging. So you have to know that every year about 800 to 1000 people apply for this diplomacy career. At least that was the case when I applied in 2015. But only 20, 30, maybe 40 people get accepted every year. So every round serves as a filter and only if you passed one round, you can go to the next one. And in the very last one, the blood round, they still need to eliminate half of the people who made it so far. So let's say there are still 50 people left and they can only select 25. So yeah, a lot depended on that round. And what happens is that you get seated in front of a group of about eight people who are very diverse. There are junior and senior people from the ministry. There are a few other people from other ministries. There's HR. There's also someone from a Dutch company. They really created this diverse group that is going to hire the next uh, group of young diplomats. And they can ask you anything. So I got questions like, do you know the price of a barrel of oil this week? I did actually, because I was working on Venezuela at the time. But as I was living in London, they also asked my opinion on the Scottish referendum for independence. They also wanted to know how prone I was to burnouts because I was really close to a burnout at the time. And apparently I showed that off. They had also read my letter and they saw how interested I am in so many things. So they plainly asked me, what is something you don't want to do at this ministry? And I replied with European cooperation, which is not the best answer because European cooperation is a very large part of diplomacy work. And I think they kind of punished me with my very first posting because I got posted with the European directorate, which I didn't like at all when I heard the news. So this blood round is a little bit intimidating because there are eight to 10 people sitting in front of you who can ask you anything and you only have 20 minutes to leave a good impression and to show your skills. 
But the idea behind this blood round, I think, is really to see how well you work under pressure and how you think. They don't really care so much about if your answers are super correct or not. And I know this is a difference with other countries. For example, in Brazil, where I lived, they have this concurso where you have to study for a year and have to take these really lengthy written exams to demonstrate your knowledge of Brazilian history and world politics and so forth. And yes, of course, a certain level of knowledge is also important for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but they really look more at your personality, if it matches the culture of the ministry and if it is what they're looking for, and also your skills. And personally, I like this approach much more because diplomacy is not about knowledge and facts. Diplomacy is about human relations behind the scenes. So if you know a lot about world politics, but you find it very hard to build a human connection, I don't think you're going to succeed as a diplomat. So thankfully, they like what they saw. I made the blood round and I got accepted for the junior diplomacy path. And I was so happy with that because I had already quit my job in London because I didn't like it anymore and I had decided to move back to the Netherlands. But until then, I hadn't found a new job. I also hadn't applied to anything. So I was really happy that this all worked out. I moved back to the Netherlands and started the onboarding process. And the onboarding process was really cool because you basically got to go back to school for three months, full time and fully paid. They hired a think tank to take care of us. And every day we had classes about climate, European affairs, history, Oh gosh, I don't even remember what else we had, but we had so much. But what I really liked about this part was that it was focused on skills. So most of it was just skill training. So we had workshops on negotiation, on presenting, on debating, but also we had a simulation of a UN uh, negotiation where we all had to play a certain role of a country. And we even had a crisis simulation. So there was a full day of crisis. I was the crisis coordinator and I was going to uh, be called anytime between uh, midnight and 8 a.m. I think in the morning and we would have to solve this crisis and they had prepared it so well. As I went to the to the location, there were already cameras waiting out, outside. They had made like mock news editions with people from the team talking about the crisis. There were phone calls. I really, really loved that day. They had done it so well. We also had excursions to companies, European organizations, the Ministry of Defense and many other things. And this was also a really important aspect because as a diplomat, your network is so important. And here we already established the basis of that network. But most of all, what I loved about this period is that we had so much fun. I was with a group of 26 people in total and we just connected so well with each other. We had so much fun. We had so many drinks as well throughout those three months together. We really bonded as a group. And until this day, I still speak to a few of them who are good friends of mine. But then after three months, the dream is over, the real world starts and you're being sent to one of the departments of the ministry or in some cases an embassy. And this distinction of where you're being posted either at the headquarters or at an embassy is also a distinction in my own total experience that I see working for the ministry. I worked for four years at the headquarters in The Hague in two different roles and three years at the embassy in Brasilia, and the experiences couldn't be more different. And in my case, I absolutely loved the period in Brazil, but I wasn't so happy working in The Hague. 
And how I see it, and this is really just my own personal experience, is that when you work at the ministry, at the headquarters, you're just another civil servant. You are actually, in fact, because officially you're not a diplomat, you are a civil servant. But also the context of the organization where you're working in really embodies this principle of being a civil servant. It's slow, it's bureaucratic, it's very, very internally focused. And I didn't like that part. But I have to admit, my experience is also a little bit colored because I did the two same jobs when I was working at the ministry. So in both cases, I was a country desk officer. And that means that you take care in a very broad sense of the bilateral relations between the Netherlands and the other country. So in my very first role, I was responsible for four Southern European countries, uh, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and the Holy See, Vatican City, which was really cool. And then actually after six months, I also got the UK and Ireland on top of that because one of my colleagues was doing them, but he got ill. So I had a lot on my plate. And in my second country desk officer role after Brazil, I was responsible for Indonesia, also a pretty interesting country. And what you do in this role, as I said, is that you very broadly take care of the bilateral relations. So that means that any bilateral issues are being sorted out. You manage and coordinate visits between ministers or prime ministers. You coordinate policy between different departments and ministries. And I think whether this role is interesting or not really depends on what's going on at the moment. So I was very lucky in a way, because when I was doing the UK, Brexit happened, a Brexit referendum. So that meant a very, very busy time for me and my colleagues. And because everything was so new in the beginning, it was uncharted territory that a country was leaving the EU. It also meant that we got to work very closely with the high officials of the ministry. We had meetings, we heard what the minister was saying. There were so many news shows where he had to appear that we had to prepare. Uh, there were lots of bilateral contact moments between other ministers of foreign affairs that we also had to prepare for him. So that was all very dynamic. I really loved that period. It was summer, most of my colleagues were gone, but me and the Brexit team were so busy and working so much on this topic. And this is also what I loved about working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You get a real peek behind the scenes of world politics, of global events, things that you read about in a newspaper or that you see on TV. And when I worked at the Asia department, the Taliban took over Afghanistan and the Netherlands, just like many other countries, had to evacuate their national citizens. And I wasn't part of the Afghanistan crisis team at the ministry, but I did do a few things for them. And I just found it so interesting and so fulfilling to work on something that was playing out in front of us. Every hour there were new updates that were determining our decisions. And it was so cool to be part of the team because it just made global events like these much less abstract. And that's also when you realize that diplomacy is actually not much more than humans making policy or responding to events that are happening. It is not this vague, almost untouchable concept that you read about in a newspaper, but when you are part of it, you see that it's people making decisions based on their needs, on their interests, on their relations, on their network. And to see that happening and to be part of that was actually one of the parts of the job that I loved. Diplomacy becomes this real thing. And sometimes you and another country want the same thing and then it's very easy to find common ground and move forward together. But sometimes you and another country don't want the same thing or you want something from the other country and the other country wants something in return that you don't want to give actually. And then it becomes much more challenging because then you need to rely on your network, you need to use your skills. 
You need to use your power of persuasion. Uh, you need to come up with innovative ideas to convince the other country to get what you want or to find a win-win situation, which is always the ideal scenario for diplomats. And in my last role at the ministry, I was really in the middle of a situation where there were many conflicting interests at play, but there were also some higher political stakes. So it was really challenging to find common ground among so many different players and to create a win-win scenario for all of us. But needless to say, that also made my job much more interesting. And another cool part of the job, and by the way, I'm still talking about the country desk officer jobs that I had, or more generally the jobs at the headquarters, were the visits. As a country desk officer, you get to coordinate all the visits between the ministers of foreign affairs, between your country and another's country, and sometimes also at prime minister level. And that's really cool. And the coordinating aspect of this is actually not cool at all. It's a lot of work and sometimes a bit boring. But usually you get to join in on these meetings and visits. So you get to travel with the minister to that country and you get a seat at the table. You get to lunch or dine with prime ministers, with ministers. And that makes it really cool because you get to see really what it's like to be at the table. You get to hear ministers talking about the state of the world and their view on it. Uh, you get insider's information, which I always found really cool. But what I also really liked is that diplomacy is made by humans so their personality of these ministers also really determines a lot it's really important if there is a spark or not between two ministers if there's not the conversation gets a lot more difficult and you get to see that all happening while you're sitting at the table and there are more boring ministers who just have a monologue, basically. And they're really fun ministers as well. I once joined a lunch with uh, the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, and he made so many jokes. He was so funny. And he also really allowed the entire table to talk rather than just the two ministers and everyone else was listening. And the best part is when that meeting is taking place abroad. So you get to travel along with the minister and any officials that are joining him. And in our case, or in my case at least, it was always a small group, just me, the note taker, usually a high official, a press officer, and then a minister. And because it's such a small group and you travel all together, sometimes in the government plane, which was really cool, you really get bonding time with these people. And that's good for your internal network and your visibility, but it's also really cool to hear firsthand how ministers and high officials think and how they do certain things. Plus, it can be a lot of fun too. I had ice creams with ministers in Rome and beers in Dublin, so it's also a fun part of the job. But I don't want to glamorize it. As I said, you're still a civil servant. You're still working in this slow bureaucratic machine. And I found it so internally focused, which didn't match my personality. So I found it really hard that most of my input I never saw back in the output, unlike the more commercial jobs I had back in London. So much energy was lost in just internal coordination. I felt like the ministry was a small world on its own and I just spent most of my time finding support for the ideas of my department or convincing other departments to go a certain way. It rarely was the case that all departments were aligned and that we all had this common goal in front of us where we wanted to work towards. Rather, each department had its own goal. So you were just spending a lot of time and energy convincing the other teams to work on the same thing. And this just so didn't match my personality. And honestly, it also really undermined my motivation to work there and to really believe in the cause that I was supporting. 
And practically, I think I spend 70 or 80% of my time either in a meeting or writing emails. The amount of emails you get at the ministry is insane. It takes so much of your time just reading them and replying to them and doing something with them. And the amount of meetings, energy, trainings the ministry has spent on reducing the email workload is also insane and it never worked. It's almost like they have a disease in their organization and they just cannot get it out of the system. And how blessed I feel right now that as an entrepreneur, I maybe get two, three emails a day and I get to spend all my time on doing the things that I love rather than wasting my energy on other people's emails. And also what I didn't like is that you're just a very small part of this big machine. And sometimes when bigger political things were happening in your country that you're taking care of, you get to be part of it. But most of the time, it's just, you're just a tiny part of the web. And I didn't really like that. I wanted to have more influence, if I'm honest. And for sure, I could have gotten that if I had stayed another 10 years and climbed the ladder. I was good at what I did, so I'm sure I would have found a role that really suited me and where I had some more influence in the whole machine. But I didn't want to spend another 10 years not feeling happy. I know that some people can do it. They have a goal in mind that will make them happy and they're willing to sacrifice the here and now for it. But I'm not that type of person. My heart needs to be happy, otherwise I'm out. And out I was, I quit my job. And I'm much, much happier now. Okay, and then moving on to the more fun part of the job, the part that I worked at the embassy in Brasilia. Because working at an embassy is so different from working at the ministry. At an embassy, unless it's a really big one, because then basically it's a tiny ministry, you get a lot more freedom in what you do. One, because you work with a smaller team, so there's less structure that you need to fit into, which is really nice. Two, there's a lot more distance from the ministry, especially in my case, as I was working in Brazil. So that distance also already creates some freedom. And three, as an embassy, you execute the policy that the ministry has designed and how you do that is up to you to a certain degree. But you also get funds for this execution part. And that's really cool because then you get to design the how, basically. And I really like that part. So my first year in Brasilia actually wasn't so interesting. I had moved there in 2017, just a little bit before Bolsonaro came to power. And before applying to the job, because that was what the system was like after the first posting, you got to choose your next job, basically. I was told that I was going to take care of everything related to corporate social responsibility and to climate. But just before taking up the role, they told me that they had taken the climate part out of my portfolio and had given it to another colleague. So I wasn't really happy with that. I was left with economic affairs and CSR. But in Brasilia, there's not a single Dutch company. So work-wise, it was not the most interesting place to be in. Also, there was zero interest from the Netherlands in Brazil. There were no visits from ministers. The ministry wasn't pushing for any, I don't know, events or stimulating companies to go there. So it was a very slow period. And on top of that, I had a really nice ambassador, but he did a lot of things himself. So he didn't delegate as much. So in my first year, I was a bit bored. Everything changed when Bolsonaro came to power and when I got a new ambassador. And obviously with Bolsonaro, things politically got very heated. And maybe you already read it in between the lines in this podcast episode, but every time something happens in global affairs or something bad happens, I start to enjoy the work. 
And that's just because something out of the ordinary is going on and that makes it more challenging. And yes, sometimes or very often there are bad consequences for people or for animals or the planet or nature. But as a diplomat, it is quite nice to work on those things. So with Bolsonaro, I definitely got work out of the ordinary. Then at the same time, we also got a new ambassador who was very respected and a very experienced political ambassador who served in many European countries. And I really enjoyed working with him because he delegated many more tasks than his predecessor had, which meant a lot more interesting work for me. And he also was politically very strategic. So I learned a lot from him just working close with him. And I also got the climate part of my portfolio back, which is the part I was most interested in. And all these three things happened at the same time while the Amazon was on fire. So that meant there was a lot of work for me and it was very political. It was very strategic. And I also got to work one-to-one -one with the ambassador most of the time. So that was very useful for me as a junior diplomat. And at the same time, I was also still working with the how, the implementation of the strategy. And this is when I started loving the job. But what exactly did I do at the embassy practically? Well, for example, I had to inform myself, the embassy and the ministry about everything related to the Amazon. So I spoke to many people, to NGOs, indigenous people, politicians, but also farmers or people from the private sector, because they were also part of the problem and the solution. I found a few projects to fund. I wrote reports for the ministry. I coordinated with other European countries to formulate a response to the Brazilian government together. I also organized a full day conference with Brazilian players and Dutch companies on sustainable agriculture in the Amazon which was really cool. I traveled to the Amazon a couple of times. I even spent three days with an indigenous, very small group in the middle of the Amazon where no tourists could come because it was protected area. We got there as the embassy. I camped in the Amazon with two of my colleagues uh, for a couple of days, just sleeping in a hammock and a little bit of plastic over us, which was absolutely amazing. An experience I will never forget and for which I'm so grateful for. I got to do a lot of cool things, actually. But I have to admit that I spent most of my time emailing and informing the ministry because there was a lot of press attention for everything that happened in the Amazon. The Amazon was on fire, as they said. And the press wrote a few things about it, which was not always true. And then our parliament would ask questions about it again. So I spent a lot of my time correcting everything what was said about it and also helping the ministry to formulate nuanced answers that we could send to parliament. But it was very frustrating because I'd much rather dedicate my time and energy on something that would help us go forward rather than to spend it on correcting things that other people have said. But overall, it was still fun also because of the press attention. So I got to speak with the minister, for example, and give her an update about what the embassy was doing for the Amazon. And with a bit of persuasion, it also opened doors to do some other projects. So, for example, I managed to get eight Brazilian companies and organizations to travel to the Netherlands for a specific personalized program on corporate social responsibility that I created together with colleagues in The Hague. So embassy work is fun because you basically get to implement the how of the policy that the ministry has designed. And this is often more general policy on certain topics like climate. And it's really up to you how to get a strategy on that topic for that country in a way that we can meet our goals and that we can also create a win-win situation. 
So, for example, in Brazil, obviously, there was a lot of fear about how Bolsonaro would deal with the Amazon and how much would get destroyed. And unlike a few other European countries, the Netherlands doesn't really have big funds available for climate projects in Brazil. So our means were very limited. But I saw that we had one competitive advantage, and that was that we are the largest agricultural importer in the EU, and Brazil is a very large exporter. So that means that we have overlapping interests. And what our embassy did was that we started to focus more on this private sector aspect. So really showing that Brazil also have an interest in making their export more sustainable because otherwise the market wouldn't buy their products anymore. So rather than going through the usual approach through NGOs, because we didn't have those means available, we started leveraging our private sector position. This opened doors for us and also allowed us to speak to decision makers. And I really enjoyed this part because naturally I'm always focused on creating a win-win situation. And here I also had to think of ways to create a win-win situation with a country that seemingly had different interests. So that was a really cool part of the job. And what I also really liked was that I got a lot of freedom and not only in the how, as I already explained, but also in how I designed my day. So in The Hague, I found that my calendar was always governed by other people's to-dos. So deadlines from other departments or emails I had to do something with. Whereas in Brazil, I had all this freedom, most of it, to do whatever I thought was necessary. Because your position needs to be a lot more proactive. You can't just wait for deadlines to come your way. You need to have a very good network that you can rely on if you have any questions. Because diplomacy is also really about getting information. And for information, you need connections. You need to be able to inform the ministry of certain developments that are going on and that could be relevant for the Netherlands. So you need to actively read about certain things, talk to people to learn about things. So you have a lot of freedom in getting those appointments into your calendar. And plus, there is so much more travel, which was absolutely my favorite part of this whole job. I think I traveled every couple of weeks, not just for work, obviously, I also traveled privately. But because there were no Dutch companies in Brasilia, where I was based, I often had to go to Rio or to Sao Paulo or to a few other cities to speak with companies about CSR or just about trade in general. And for the Amazon related things, I also had to go to the Amazon state. So I was traveling a lot. And in my private time, I was also always taking road trips or flying somewhere. And in three years, of which six months pandemic actually, I visited 20 out of 27 states in Brazil, which most Brazilians don't even do. So that was definitely one of my favorite parts. And that actually brings me to the last part that I want to talk about, and that is the more personal aspect of living abroad as a diplomat. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I absolutely loved being a diplomat in Brazil. If I look back, the three years in Brazil were definitely the best period of my life so far. And that for sure had something to do with the more personal aspect of being a diplomat. I lived in this beautiful house, a big house with a big garden, tropical garden. I had monkeys in my garden, I saw toucans, I was woken up by macaws almost every morning. I loved that. I love the tropics, I love nature, so being surrounded by that all the time was absolutely a dream come true for me. I also really enjoyed living in Brasilia. I know when you say to Brazilians that you're moving to Brasilia, they're like, what are you going to do there? Because they find the city very boring. 
And also for tourists, I understand why they would find the city boring. But to live there, I loved it. I'm not a big city girl. I like being in smaller cities with nature around me. So Brasilia is the perfect city for that. It's very spacious. It's very, very green. And it is surrounded by beautiful nature parks just a couple of hours by car away. It's also very safe. And the only downside is that there's not so much to do. It's not this most vibrant city where you can really party as well. But the good thing is, is that Brasilia is a domestic hub within Brazil. So you can go anywhere with a direct flight for max two or three hours. So that makes it really easy to travel as well and to find the parts that Brasilia doesn't offer in other cities or parts of the country. But I'm going to stop myself here and not share anything more specifically about Brazil because I know myself, I could fill an entire podcast episode about this beautiful country which I might actually do one day. But instead, I'll share a little bit more generally about diplomat life. I would say that one of the downsides, the major downside, is that when you live abroad, you're not at home. You might think, duh, but sometimes this is a difficult realization. So there were moments, I'm not often homesick, actually, I'm almost never homesick, but there were a few occasions in Brazil that I really missed being at home. There was a Christmas, I remember, I wasn't allowed to travel back home because my boss was already going. And I got a parasite, I was ill, I was on antibiotics, I wasn't allowed to have even a sip of alcohol during Christmas dinner. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was still in the Netherlands, we had a long distance relationship. And so I just felt very, very lonely. Even though I had all my good friends around me, with Christmas, it just didn't feel like Christmas. Also being in this tropical vibe. So... It's definitely a sacrifice that you need to make when you become a diplomat. You will miss out on certain things from back home. And that's just the way it is. It sucks sometimes, but that's what you have to deal with. Something that I also didn't like sometimes was that I wasn't able to express my own personal views on something. So as a diplomat, you need to be very careful that your words, your personal words, are not seen as words of your country as an official standpoint. And obviously there were times, especially during the Amazon crisis, that I had my own opinion on things that were happening, but I couldn't fully express them because they didn't always match with the ministry's point of view. Another part that I kind of struggled with as an ambivert was the number of receptions that you had to go through. So as I said, diplomacy is really about people. So you need to have a good network. So that means that you actively have to go out and meet people. I'm not an introvert, but I'm not an extrovert either. I am an ambivert. So that means I still need quite some time alone to recharge my social battery. And if you have a week where you have your own work, you have a lot of day events or meetings to go to, and then also two or three receptions at night, that was just too much for me. I wasn't always able to handle that. Like I needed my time alone. And also what I didn't like about those receptions was that people were interested not so much in you, but in you, in your function. So the chit chat was always based on the hierarchy of your position or the country that you were representing or the topic that was tied to your function. And I didn't really enjoy that. I'm genuinely interested in people. This is also the reason why I became a coach and I can't do with this formal chit chat about just work only. And most of the time in Brasilia, the other people at these receptions were older men who came to the receptions with their wives. 
and I just didn't have a lot in common with them. I found it a bit boring, actually. But thankfully, and this is one of the good parts, I met a few amazing friends in Brasilia. They were other female diplomats. And together we found this amazing group. We traveled all the time together and we would often go to these receptions together or at least let each other know when we would go there so we would arrive at the same time and not arriving there alone. So we had each other to fall back on. I really like that aspect. And actually the fact that you got to meet so many different and interesting people through this job was definitely one of the perks. I got to meet indigenous families, uh, hardcore cowboy politicians, interesting people at companies who are working so hard, other diplomats, people from NGOs who really inspired me. And it was such a privilege being a diplomat and getting to meet so many wonderful people who really enriched my life there. And speaking of the perks, there are definitely a few other perks when you are a diplomat. And obviously the first one is the diplomatic passport that you may have heard of. So as a diplomat, you have diplomatic immunity. So that means that the host country, to a certain degree, cannot force you to do anything. So that was really nice because I always obeyed to the Brazilian law, always. But during the pandemic in Brasilia, we were required to wear a face mask, even if we were walking outside, even if we were running outside. And I like to run, but I absolutely refused to wear a face mask when I was running in 25 degrees and humidity. So I just didn't. And I'm pretty sure I also wouldn't have done it if I weren't a diplomat. But in this case, I kind of felt more protected to not do it. And I always made sure to not be near anyone. I was always running. I was the only person on the street. The rest was always in their car. So I felt it was no extra threat to people around me. So I was okay with it personally, but I felt extra <laughs> confident to do it because I have my diplomatic immunity. So that was definitely a perk. But I just want to emphasize, I always, always obeyed the law in all other cases. Like I never abused my diplomatic status. And I know some diplomats do in other countries, like they don't pay their fines when they park their car in the wrong place. I always paid all my fines. So this is definitely not me saying that I love the diplomatic status because I got to do whatever I wanted. And there was another perk, which I loved, I'm not going to lie, and that was the pay. I got paid way more than I got when I was working as a civil servant at the headquarters. And that's because as a diplomat, you get a lot of allowances. And it's fair as well, because as I mentioned before, there are also sacrifices that you need to make. So it's good that there is some compensation in return. And it really allowed me to live my best life there. And I'm purposefully mentioning this topic because I know money is a triggering topic for many people in this world. But money is also a crucial aspect in our society, whether you like it or not. And in my case, I got a real taster of what it was like to have more money, to experience this abundance. And it was so nice. I didn't need to worry about money anymore. I was able to invest in myself. I invested in courses that have helped me later as a coach and as an entrepreneur. And I knew that if I would run into a problem, I was going to be able to fix it because I had money in my savings account. And that was a really nice comforting thought. And being a diplomat really allowed me to build a more stable and healthy relationship with money actually. So I'm so thankful for this perk that also came my way because it has brought me a lot. So yeah, diplomat life in Brazil was absolutely amazing. I got to live in abundance. I met amazing people. I woke up with macaws every day. I got to work on really cool things. 
had really nice colleagues as well. I really love my life in Brazil. So why quit, you may think? Well, that was because all the other aspects of the job that I mentioned were still there as well. The bureaucracy, the slow pace, the internal focus, and it just didn't make me happy. And I knew I was going to miss the diplomat life part when I was going to quit my job, but I was willing to make that sacrifice because I knew overall I wasn't going to be happy at the ministry. I knew I wanted to start my own business. And because I had lived abroad before joining the ministry as well, I also knew that I don't need the ministry if I ever want to live abroad again. Yes, it's absolutely nice. They take care of your move. They pay you well. You come into this nice environment where you get to be half Brazilian, half Dutch. But I can also experience that through another way. I don't need the ministry for that. They don't have a monopoly on that. So about a year after I had moved back, I finally took the decision. I'm going to quit my job and start my own coaching business. And that's what I'm doing now. And I'm just so happy. And in another episode, I'll share much more about how I took that decision and how I was able to take that leap of faith because I basically left everything steady and good behind for something that was so unsure. And I really thrive in those environments, but for a lot of people, this is more challenging. So in another episode, I'll share some tips about how you can make these bold moves like I did. For now, I want to thank you for listening all the way until here. I really hope that you enjoyed this story. And if you did, I'd love to hear. So you can find me on Instagram and you can send me a DM there because I'm basically there every day. You can find me at Amanda Maxime. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel where I will upload more videos or leave a review for my podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever platform you're listening to. And I'm also really interested if you are a diplomat and if you recognize my experiences or if you don't at all, I would love to hear. So please feel free to reach out anytime. And if you are a diplomat stuck in a golden cage and you also want to escape of it, know that I have coaching spots available again starting in May. So if you're interested, you can book a free discovery call with me and I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, thank you again and see you next time in this expat life. Ciao, ciao.